0: You're listening to Cloud9, where Bahaiteachings.org interviews artists from around the globe to learn about what inspires, uplifts, and motivates them to make a positive contribution to the world. My name is Shadi Talui-Wallace. Welcome to another episode of Cloud9. Here at Cloud9, we chat with creative individuals about how the teachings and writings of the Baha'i Faith are infused into various aspects of their creative practice. Sometimes it's more explicit and distinct, and other times it's discreet and lies in the undertones of the artist's creative process intention, exploration, and approach to their work. That's why we created Cloud9. We wanted a space for Baha'i artists to not only share examples of their creative process in connection to the faith, but also extend the conversation into the countless ways that the Baha'i teachings contribute to creative advancement by exploring the various spaces, conversations, and points of inquiry that these Baha'i artists are also engaged in. Which brings me to this episode's feature artist, Kimia Fredosi-Klein. She's a Brooklyn-based artist and curator who's been exploring the discourse of art and spirituality for over a decade. She holds a BFA in painting from Washington University and has earned an MFA in visual arts from the San Francisco Art Institute. Her work has featured in numerous solo group exhibitions throughout the United States and Europe. She's participated in various residency programs and taught, lectured and critiqued at various universities and institutions around the United States. As an extension of her studio practice, Kimia directs art programming at the Wyeth Hotel in Brooklyn where she has curated over 20 public installations, 15 group shows and launched an in-house cinema residency program. Kimia, welcome to Cloud9. Thank you so much
1: for that amazing introduction. Thank you.
0: So before delving into your personal journey as an artist, I'd love to start by exploring this concept in Baha'u'llah's writings, where he says that the work of artists should be considered among the books of divine scientists. In this light, Abdu'l-Bahá, who is the eldest son of Baha'u'lláh, goes on to share that by the power of the Holy Spirit working through his soul, man is able to perceive the divine reality of things. All great works of art and science are witnesses to this power of the Spirit. In your own experience, Kimia, how have you seen craftsmanship, creativity, or artistry connect us to the power of the spirit and advance our understanding
1: of divine reality and the spiritual world? I I think I just want to begin by addressing this notion um, of the artist as the scientist, because I think that so often people separate arts and sciences. um, And sciences are kind of elevated in the way that we uh, think about Um, intellectual disciplines and subjects that we teach children and arts are kind of um, thought of as something that we do. It's kind of extra, but, you know, it's oftentimes the first thing to get cut from public schools in in the U S and elsewhere. Um, And I think that by really regarding the arts as to be something that is as important as science, it changes the way that people regard it and it changes the, um, the the position that people give it in in terms of the totem pole of um of the disciplines that are out there. So anytime mm-hmm. anytime I'm showing up in studio, I kind of think about um, I think about this concept, and I think that scientists what they're basically doing is in in a very simplified form, they're investigating the physical world. They're understanding you know they're coming to understanding like the laws of gravity, the laws of physics. Um, why things fall off a couch, how we get airplanes to fly, how we get rockets into space. Um, And so it's the physical world that they're exploring. And with artists, what I have myself come to think of is that we are really exploring um, the spiritual world through our own souls and Mm -hmm. our own imaginations and our own subconscious. Um, They are worlds that that you can't see with the human eye. You can only see with your mind's eye in the same way that you can't see gravity, you can't necessarily see physical forces. Um, so just as we're mining the physical world for these realities, I think the role of the artist is to mine the, the spiritual world and to bring the spiritual world into the physical world so that people can see it. Um, and I think some great, like tangible examples of this are, you know, like art has been such a huge, um, has played such a huge role in every religion um, in terms of inspiring awe and grandeur in worshipers. For example, if you walk into the Vatican or if you walk into a mosque, even the architecture Mm. of these spaces um, reference the power and the glory of God. Um, And so I think that art has always been intertwined with the spiritual um, from, from its inception um, and that it's one of the most important roles that it plays in our society. Um, so yeah, examples are churches, mosques, and then also people, you know, when we talk about heaven and hell in the Baha'i faith, we don't necessarily, we don't believe that there's a physical fiery place that's hell or, um, a place on clouds that's heaven. We, we believe that these are metaphors for nearness or, um, being far from from god but for many people if you Mm. ask them what they think about in terms of what is heaven or what is hell the images that come to their minds are images that originated in paintings when christ talks about what heaven and hell looks like in the bible it was artists that brought those concepts to the physical realm. They took them off the pages of the Bible and they put them onto canvas or onto frescoes, onto walls. And and it's really what has given our, what has given humanity um, and our collective conscious the, the imagery that we typically think of um, when we think of these places. So mm-hmm. I think that's also another just really practical and tangible example of, of how artists have have acted um, as scientists and as revealers of this kind of spiritual, otherworldly dimension that is very much part of the physical world, but um it just it takes the faculty of our soul, it takes imagination to to mine it and to bring it um, to bring it into reality, into physical reality.
0: Thank you for sharing those examples. I'd never even cons- I've never thought about it in that way. So, in your opinion, if we view artists as divine scientists, how do you believe this will influence or change society's perception or the community's perception of artists and their role in advancing the Baha'i Faith's mission to unify humankind?
1: Well, I think one of the personal struggles I have, but also one of the advantages of being an artist, is that you are creating, you are creating things that don't exist. And in order to do that, you have to, be a, you have to be a professional at process. Because process is the only way that things are created. So there's a lot of people that don't really understand what process is and they, and we live in a world of instant gratification, right? We have microwaves where you can make instant potatoes. We have, um, <laughs> can we have text messaging? We have social media, Amazon so, on our Amazon prime, 24 hour <laughs> delivery. Everything we do now is kind of short circuiting our, um, our regard for patients and I think what is really special about both, both art and science, because science, you do, you do the same thing. If you're doing an experiment, you have a hypothesis and you're engaging in a process of discovery. So I think the more people that we have who are artists, who are used to this, <laughs> used to what process means, who are comfortable with ambiguity, who can um, be brave and courageous, and make mistakes to, to fail repeatedly. I, Thomas Edison failed how many times before he discovered the, the light bulb? I, it was thousands, I think. So I think having professionals, professional artists who are really comfortable with this and, you, and, and think about process in a positive way is really important for us in society. Um, and it's something that we have lost, I think, in, in many, hmm. many ways. Um, so, much of what the Baha'i faith teaches and does uh, is centered around community building uh we've also lost in many uh in many parts of our society a sense of community and what that really means and so Baha 'is are slowly weaving together uh, hearts <laughs> once again, <laughs> trying to. And I think that it is a process that um, is, is difficult and you, can't, you almost can never see what the outcome is going to look like in the same way that when I go to um, paint something, I never, ever have an idea of what it's going to look like at the end. Um, I take one step, you know, I pick one color, I make one line, and then I, um, I engage in a conversation with this piece of art and it slowly unfolds itself. Um, And in the same way, I think we see this process happening in in our communities where Mm. um, we take one action, we take one step towards community building. We don't necessarily know what the result will be or what the effects will be, but um, it's process, it's action, it's reflection, it's prayer. Um, And so I think that these two uh, realms of investigation and discovery are very parallel. And I think that's why artists are so important um, in this next epoch of human civilization. I couldn't agree more.
0: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Bahola writes that it has been revealed and is now repeated that the true worth of artists and craftsmen should be appreciated for they advance the fears of mankind. In your opinion, what are some small steps that you believe anyone in society can make no matter what their role is, to show their appreciation to the arts and elevate the rank and station of artists so that they
1: can advance the affairs of mankind? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, The first thing that comes to mind is that you can buy art from local artists, wherever you are. You know, what artists need more often than not are people to support them financially because, you know, that's what we, that's our livelihood. So wherever you're living, um, there will be local artists, artists artisans, craftsmen, and instead of buying your plates from Target, you can find a local potter. Instead of buying art for your walls from Walmart, you can um, find a local painter. And maybe if you can't afford the original, they can make a print of their work that you can then have framed. So I think there's so many, in, in wherever you are, there's so many options for buying artists and supporting local craftsmen um, from a monetary standpoint, um, which I think should not be minimized. It's very, I think it's really important to do that. Um, something else that people can do is to attend uh, museums, like attend, go to shows to, to if there's plays or, or musicals maybe community theater, maybe you live in a city where there's like professional ones, or you can go to museums. Again, art only works. (laughs) Well, not only, but art primarily works when all of humanity engages with it. So maybe there's a few people who are being shown in a museum. Maybe it's not everyone who's showing in a museum, but everyone can, um, can appreciate what's there and can gain insights and knowledge by by, um, exposing themselves to this art. Um, and then the third thing I think would be is if you are, um, if you are near or around children or school kids to really encourage, um, the artistic interest of these children, um, or, you know, or youth, I've had so many parents come to me and say, oh, my, my, my son or my daughter loves to draw, but I've done everything to discourage it because I really don't want them to be an artist. And it just mm. breaks my heart every time I hear that because <clears throat> like, the next generation of artists are being discouraged from pursuing their callings because of, because of the prejudices and the fears that their parents or their aunts and uncles have um, towards a profession in the arts. So I think if you are near or around or rearing children that are interested in the arts um to really foster that and to lean into it and not be afraid of it i think those are all really practical things that people can do
0: yeah i want to add one more that's been super helpful for me is like people hosting me when i travel and and creating a space for me to share they don't have money or a lot of time on their hands but they have a space that can host people and so just even offering a space to share my music or to share these ideas that are attached to my music has also been um, incredibly helpful.
1: That's such a good point and another thing you can do is to offer space to artists for residencies. Um, there are a number of people in New York who have second homes whether it be upstate uh, New York or in in the Hamptons. And what they've done is they've converted one room or they've converted like a small side home to be a space where artists can escape the city and be in nature and just write or create or paint for a week free of cost. So depending on, You know who you are what space is available to you it might be that you own a restaurant and maybe you have a wall where you can showcase local painters or you know in my Mm -hmm. case i started working at a hotel and it was the owners of the hotel that said you know we should fill every single room of this hotel with original art so whatever space you find yourself in you can think creatively in terms of using it to support and showcase artists
0: So I'd love to, we've kind of spoken about artists as scientists, but I want to talk about uh, your own personal creative journey as an artist. You grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. I think you were born there, if I'm not mistaken. I was born yeah. there. Mm-hmm. To parents who immigrated from Iran to the U.S. under very difficult circumstances. Could you elaborate a little on these circumstances and the role they played in your identity as a young girl and how creativity and art contributed or gave voice to your identity at that age.
1: Yeah. So my family were members of the Baha'i faith, which is uh, heavily persecuted in Iran. And so because of that, my family fled for their own safety and came to the U S right before I was born. And I guess, the the region that they chose to settle in Tennessee is, was is really sort of the Bible Belt and in the 80s when I was growing up there was very little diversity so I was oftentimes the only child of color in my in grade school and middle school and high school um, and it's it's such a predominantly Christian society that if you are not, if you're not a member of the right church, then certain families won't let you play with their children. So I had a lot of friends who broke up with me because I wasn't in their Bible study. We would have neighbors who would come knock on our doors sobbing because we weren't Christians. Mm. They didn't want us going to hell. So it was a really sort of extreme, society to grow up in as an immigrant I think if we if my family had moved to a more metropolitan area I wouldn't have felt so much like a outsider um, or a black sheep but I was really my entire life made to feel like an outsider and what was my what is my home because I was born there Mm. Um, and so I think that dissonance between (laughs) being you know speaking fluent English and being born in America, but people always questioning like, why are you here? Why do you look different? Um, That sort of dissonance has always played a role in my art and uh, continues to do so to this day.
0: So fast forward to your work of late. You say that uh, what you were exploring in relation to your family's experience and this dissonance back then has continued to evolve in your work. Yeah. Are there any other sources of experience or experiences that you've drawn uh, inspiration from lately? Or could you talk a little bit, elaborate a little bit more of how um, this experience and your family's background has influenced your work today?
1: Well, a lot of my work, I mean, I guess I would say since I moved to New York, so the past eight years, my work became really personal. I think before I was always trying, before when I was in school, I was kind of interested in And I was encouraged to, this is kind of what you're encouraged to do in art school in in the U S is critique society and to kind of look outwards. But for some reason, after I moved to New York, I just became really interested in looking inwards. And so I started a whole series where I was exploring, um, the landscape of Iran because it's a landscape that I've never been able to see because of the circumstances that my family fled Iran under. I've never been able to go back. Um, and so I did an entire series on the imagined landscapes that my family had told me about through stories from the time I was a small girl. Um, so that was like really the, the series that that started this whole introspec- introspection into uh, my ancestry and my heritage. Um, and then I guess more recently, I've been working on um, reclaimed wood that I find in Brooklyn. So basically, wood that has been discarded, I collect and I sort of bring it, I make it beautiful and bring it back to life is the way I think about it. So it's like engaging in a process of alchemy with a piece of detritus. Um, And there is a whole tradition of outsider artists from the South, primarily African-American artists, because they didn't have access to fancy canvases or fancy paint. They would just use whatever they had. Um, And so I'm really sort of engaging in this tradition of, like, collecting whatever is there um, to make art with. And there's one specific painter, Joe Minter, who's from the South, and he said that the reason that he makes art on, on trash, basically, is because it reflects um, the way that he felt that he'd been treated um, his whole life as an African-American in the South. And so he's taking a piece of trash and making it beautiful again. And I, I remember reading that, seeing, seeing an exhibit of his work at um, SF MoMA and thinking how uh, particularly of late um, immigrants have been made to feel in the U.S. And feeling feeling very much like mm. this was a conversation that I that I could really engage in. And so, the most recent work I've been doing has been on all of this reclaimed wood that I find, um, which is really in conversation with these outsider artists um, from the South and this tradition of, of turning trash into treasure. One of the one of my favorite things about finding these surface of the, these pieces of wood is that they come in all shapes and sizes and they're not perfect squares, you know, like you can go to an art store and buy a canvas and it'll be a perfect square, a perfect rectangle mm. but all of the surfaces I'm finding are, they have holes cut out of them or they're shaped funny and I think that conceptually, conceptually this really works for me because because I've never been to Iran there's a level of cultural amputation that I feel there's huge spaces in my understanding of what this place is. There's huge mm. gaps in my knowledge of, you know, Iranian history, for example. And I think the gaps and the holes and like the, the sort of like puzzle piece feel of these surfaces that I'm working on relates very directly to that, um, to that fragmented understanding of Iran. I'm, I'm painting on fragments which are metaphors for my mm. fragmented understanding of, of this place that up until you know 1982, all of my ancestry was from.
0: So I want to kind of tack this on because it's very mm-hmm. relevant to what we were just talking about in regards to the mediums that you use. You and your husband recently became parents to a beautiful girl named Cora. That's true. And in the Baha'i faith, the chief role and responsibility of the mother is raising and educating the child, which is uh, greatly emphasized in the Baha'i writings. So how has motherhood influenced or shifted your creative practice materially, conceptually, and spiritually?
1: Um, Well, I've just found it to be the most extraordinary experience of my life. I mean, to put it plainly. Um, And... There's there's not enough superlatives to sort of describe describe all of the emotions and all, all of the feelings and all of the insanity that goes into be, to bringing a person into the world. Um, but I will say that the process of being pregnant, going through pregnancy and birth, really sort of, I mean, it changed my practice just from a very practical standpoint because I couldn't use oil paint because of its toxicity. So because of that, I had to search out and find other materials. And that's when I discovered papyrus, which is the ancient Egyptian paper. It's like the first form of paper. So I started painting on papyrus, which relates back to my Middle Eastern heritage. And I started sewing the papyrus and folding it into the forms of houses to sort of talk about the domestic role of women and how that can be a joy, mm. but how it can also feel like you're um, you know you're giving up pieces or parts of yourself you're being bound into a role that maybe you didn't sign up for, um, so that struggle that in between and so materially my my practice evolved, and now I, I as much as I oil paint, I also work on this paper, which I discovered during my pregnancy, and then It was also during the time that i was pregnant that i became really interested in in making images that only existed in in my subconscious so before that i typically always painted from photographs found photographs or photographs that i would take or from models from life and then something Mm. happened to me when i was pregnant maybe it's because i was creating a body within my body that I just I just was interested in what was in my mind's eye. I was just interested in the space and the colors, and what I could bring out from my subconscious. So, if you look at my work, you know, from the from the year before my my child was born and and the year after it, it kind of looks completely different um, because of this mm-hmm. shift. The, the spatial relations are different. The perspective is different. And it's because I, I switched from looking at the world um, and, and trying to re-represent it in my images to just pulling out from what was inside of me and putting that on a piece of paper. Oh, I, I mean, I think also the act, I mean, the act of, of creating a human inside of your body and giving birth is is insane. I mean, it's just a completely insane thing that women are called to do and have been doing since the dawn of time. Um, but I think that not to sound cliche, but just having gone through that, it, um, it made me feel so incredibly powerful in a way that I never, ever could have expected. And it like showing up, (laughs) showing up to give birth takes so much courage that, um, mm. it's an act that really sort of any other fear that I had ever had or felt kind of just melted away in, in, in the light of, of the event of giving birth. And so I think that, mm. um, there was things that I was, have always, you know, been kind of afraid of. And once my daughter was born, I, there's really not much left that I, that I feel afraid of. And so I think it was also a very liberating experience because I kind of felt like, man, if I can do that, I can do anything. Um, And that has definitely Mm -hmm. translated into my work. It's made me freer. It's made me take risks that I wouldn't have normally, that I wouldn't have ever taken before. It's made me less apologetic for the subjects that I want to paint and the way that I want to paint them. Um, so it really, it really transformed me, um, and it, and that, of course, um, feeds into my practice and, t- and into my artwork.
0: Wow, that was really inspiring, <laughs> Kimia. I, I kind of, I see parenthood, I freak out, and I'm like, what am I going to do with my art? But what you just shared was, it really rang. I needed to hear that. Yeah, right I now. think
1: that's. <laughs> I think that was why. I mean, I put it off for a long time because. So much yeah. of what you hear, uh, so much of what I heard in my experience in both undergrad and grad school was, oh, you can't be a painter and a, a woman. Like, you're not allowed to do that. And you yeah. definitely can't be a painter mm-hmm. and a mother. Like, forget about like it. Like, you have to make a choice. You have to make a choice. And I kind of, yeah, in, like, deep down, I felt like that was wrong, but I, I, it just kept being reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. I kind of started believing in mm-hmm. it. And then, you know, you hear yeah. all these new parents complain about their kids and complain about parenthood and they feel like they're doing you a service by telling you what it's really like. And so I was really, I had the lowest expectations imaginable. And (laughs) I think that maybe helped me because it has been the most joyful, magical, wonderful experience of my entire life. I, I I can't tell you how much I love being a mom. And even the hard days aren't hard because you're so in love um, that it just, it's, it fills you up in a whole new way. It, it feels like you're seeing the world for the first time. It is the the greatest blessing that I will ever, ever be given by God. And I, I mean, I feel like an old Jewish grandma now. I'm telling everyone to have kids because, because what are you waiting for? Yeah. What are you waiting for? All my friends yeah. want to kill me now. I'm like, no, it's the best. <laughs> now I want four. It's definitely not going to happen. I, but you should, you should have four. Not gonna I gonna have that on record. Before. No. Um, <laughs> you out. also
0: like this idea of, I, as it, it speaks to the nature of an artist that you're faced with these kind of restrictions that you could either perceive as quite limiting, but you also saw them as an opportunity to discover I did. new new I things. Did, yeah. And I think that, that was really inspiring as well. And I want to come back to this idea of tapping into your subconscious mm-hmm. because it, it relates very much to my next question about meditation mm-hmm. and prayer, which it seems that you've... You really plugged into um, not just when you were pregnant and when you had your baby, mm-hmm. but even the the moments leading up right. to um, leading up to this as an artist. Uh, Abdul Baha, the uh, son of Baha'u'llah, has said that meditation is the key for opening the doors of mysteries, mm-hmm. discerns the reality of things, puts man in touch with God. Do Abdul Baha's words ring true to you and could you describe mm-hmm. the influence that prayer
1: meditation has had on your studio work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes, because words definitely ring true to me and um, it's really the only way that I can paint. I mean, I start every time I walk into my studio, I start my session with a prayer. Um, I sit down and I I have a little couch in my studio and I sit on the couch. I say my prayer and then I just I spend time looking at the work. I don't make any moves. I don't you know mix any paint. I just sit down and I and I look at what I've done the day before, and I don't start painting until after I've meditated visually on what I see before me. And I the I mean I can sort of hear the paintings. They start talking to me like. You know the other day, one of them was like, "You know what? My upper right hand corner shouldn't be yellow. It should be blue." And so the second I sort of hear what the next step is, that's when I'll start painting. But I don't just show up and go. I show up, I pray, I meditate. It's an integral part of my process. And I think of um, I think of my paintings as as physical meditations. Like the, the only way that they ever get finished is is with those two things baked into them. And so in some ways, I think of them as, as um, I don't want to say holy objects, but I definitely think that they perhaps can be portals for people to, to be to be put back in touch with their hearts or to open their hearts. Um, and I, I guess that's my highest hope for my work is that it, it could potentially do that for somebody looking at it.
0: You've described your role as director of art programming at the Wythe Hotel as an extension of your studio practice. Mm-hmm. Could you firstly walk us through how you became a curator yes. and what those steps looked like for you?
1: Sure. I, um, I moved to New York after I finished grad school, and I, no one would hire me. And I needed a job to make money <laughs> so to pay for my life. Um, And I didn't know anyone in New York because I had gone to school in San Francisco. So I applied to, I don't know, 40 jobs and no one got back to me except for this one hotel that had just opened in Brooklyn. And it was in this old factory that had been renovated to be a 70 room hotel in Brooklyn. Um, And they hired me to work at the front desk where I checked people in and I checked people out um, for two years. And in that, during that two years, I became friends with the owners of the hotel who have always had a really strong commitment to the arts because the arts are such an integral part of Brooklyn. And they wanted the hotel to feel, uh, authentic to the neighborhood. So after about two years of, of working there, they knew I was an artist. They knew I was having shows and connected to the art community. And so the owners sat me down over lunch and said, um, we are financially in a position where we can start buying artwork for the hotel and we think it's a program that should belong to you. How do you feel about that? <laughs> and I obviously was very excited. Um, I had never really done curating before. In the art world, the two realms are very separate. You, you're not also, you're not a curator and an artist, you're one or the other. Yeah, you don't do both. Right, and right. so I had never thought that I could do both, um, but it turns out you actually can <laughs> and it's becoming more and more popular.
0: Um, What skills translate from being an artist to being a curator, in your opinion? I
1: think, um, well, you know, having a a basic knowledge or actually like a pretty extensive knowledge of materials of what a mature artwork looks like versus um, someone who's like just begun. um, Mm -hmm. Having, you know, having a good eye is, is really important. And that's something that develops over years. But then also coming up with ideas for shows, like when you pair two artists together or when you pair 15 artists together, a new conversation, you have the potential of of beginning a new conversation amongst the pieces. So it's different than Mm -hmm. if you have a solo show just with one artist who's working, you know, around one subject versus if you bring in 10 or 15 artists, and then all of a sudden their work is all in conversation with each other. It's all of these different textures and patterns and colors. And so in the same way that I would visually organize one single painting, I kind of think about that in terms of organizing an exhibition.
0: A recent survey of permanent collections in 18 of the United States' most prominent art museums showed that out of over 10,000 artists, 87% were male. And eighty-five yep. percent identified as European or Caucasian or white. As a female and a person of ethnic and religious minority, do you feel that these statistics are also reflected in the field of art curation? And do you do you see yourself as a minority in your work as a curator?
1: Uh, yeah, definitely. I think I think more and more women and women of color are are becoming curators, but traditionally. It has always been a role dominated by Caucasian men. Um, Recently, I was uh, was approached by a European man who is actually from Europe. And he had created this book of, quote, studio visits with Brooklyn-based artists. And he wanted me to purchase copies for the hotel and to have a copy in every room. So I said, I would love to see the book. Can you please send it to me? So he gets me a copy of the book. There's 55 artists included. And as I was turning the pages, I noticed that not, there was out of the 55, two of them were women and none of them were, there was not a single minority anywhere in the book, male or female. So I wrote this Mm. gentleman back and I said, um, thank you so much for this book. This is an amazing project that you have Taken on, but I don't really see this as a reflection of Brooklyn artists at all because the majority of, of the people you have represented are Caucasian and there's only two women in the book. And he wrote me back basically a one line email and he said, Actually, there's three women in the book. And, <laughs> and that was, you know, that was like the end of our conversation. But I think for many people, it's still, it's still what is ex- and what they're comfortable with is this sort of Caucasian male perspective because it's thought of as neutral and the second mm-hmm. you bring in a woman or the second you bring in a person of color um, it becomes uh politicized, which I think is really problematic um, so yeah, it's really unfortunate, but that is that's what we're dealing with it's the history of it's the history of art and i I just feel very lucky that I've been that I've been able to carve out this role for myself. And I've been able to promote and give a voice to artists of color and women. The, the collection that I curate is predominantly women. Um, the, it's over 50%. So I, that is something that I'm always conscious of um, and try to mm. actively, I'm actively trying to uh, counterbalance the quid pro quo that's out there.
0: So you're this is a good this is a good conversation to have. You're you've spoken very specifically to your own experience and as a person of color and religious minority what you're bringing to the table, but if you kind of saw a diversity mm-hmm. of curators across the board, um how do you believe that this could contribute to the diversity in in creative perspectives and and what we just what we see around us more in galleries and in museums?
1: Well, I think people people are often attracted to what is familiar. So if you have a, if you have someone who is a Caucasian male, like oftentimes the shows are curating are 99% male because that's what's familiar and easy to them. So if you are mixing it up some and you have curators who have a range of backgrounds and a range of uh, cultural identities, like hopefully they're not just picking what is familiar but they're also going to have different perspectives into what constitutes art what constitutes good mm. art what constitutes art that is that deserves to be seen and showcased um and so i think just by nature of of having a diverse like to answer your question to ha- if you are having a diverse group of curators what they are going to be naturally attracted to because of their own backgrounds is going to be a diverse body of work Mm -hmm.
0: Now, you kind of touched on this already with um, your work as a curator and how you like to feature 50 percent, at least, um, women like represented in your pieces. So could you expand a little bit on this and the sort of spaces that you strive to create and how aspects of the Baha'i faith may also inform this creative process?
1: Yeah, I think, um, well, you know, one one aspect of the Baha'i faith that informs this process is the equality of men and women. So I'm, I'm working in a field that has extreme inequality. So by insisting that at least 50% of the artists that I show and represent are, are women, that's, you know, that's a very direct correlation with that principle. Um, another principle of the Baha'i faith is the oneness of humanity. So I really strive to also showcase and include artists of color, indigenous artists, Artists who perhaps have not gone through traditional academic training, um, championing outsider artists and artists with disabilities is something else that I'm also very passionate about. And that also is related to um, the Baha'i concept of the oneness of humanity and really bringing that to the forefront. I think also um, this idea of creating community and collective spaces is something I think about. One of the programs I have initiated at the hotel is a monthly drawing, figure drawing night, where we have we have models available and refreshments available, and it's open to the entire community. You don't have to pay; it's free admission. You just come and you draw. So I've. Started creating spaces where people, regardless of their artistic backgrounds, regardless of age or anything, can come together in one room and create art together. And I think that this is a really important um, this is a really important event because it's just it's it's so beautiful to see people from all different backgrounds coming together with one common purpose, and that purpose being to create beauty. Um, And I think that is also. 100% 100% inspired by the Baha'i teachings. Mm.
0: Those are some great examples, I think, for our listeners as well of of various spaces if they're inclined to create them. They're a really good examples. Definitely. So, yeah. So what's the best advice that you've received as an artist and a curator that enabled you to persevere? And could you share that with our listeners and hopefully inspire them as well?
1: Yeah. I mean, I had one professor... Um, in college who uh, he ended every single email to me with persevere. <laughs> that was it. That was the, that was the advice. And um, and anytime I felt like giving up, I would just think about Professor Duncan, who was such a champion of my of my artwork and of my creative practice. And that's exactly what I would do. I would persevere because if you are starting out in a creative field, Unlike other fields like medicine or law where there's like a really set path Mm. to having a salary and becoming self-sufficient and established, um, the arts are unfortunately not that way. Um, And so everyone's path and everyone's story is different, which makes it difficult to figure out how you're going to make this crazy thing work. Um, But it also gives you a lot of creativity and flexibility. So anyone starting out, I would just say persevere, even if you, I have so many, I've gotten so many rejection letters. There's been so many opportunities that, you know, I haven't been able to, that that haven't been made available to me for various reasons. But um, I think if you go into this field because you love it, then that will sustain you. And um, if you just keep going, it just gets better and better. And also be generous, be generous. The, the, I think that's a huge part of um, the confirmations I've sort of received in New York is because I've been generous. I have made space and given money to other artists through my cur- curating at the Wife Hotel. I've, I've bought, bought their work from them. I've, I've mm-hmm. um, hosted shows for them. I've created the cinema residency. So the more that you're able to use whatever resources you have to give to other artists, tenfold will come back to you, which is, am- it's just amazing. Beautiful.
0: So what's next in store for you? I hear a child in the background.
1: <laughs> more more yeah, children? there's definitely a child <laughs> in the background. Next in store, yeah. Next in store is getting the child to sleep tonight. Um, I have a, I have a solo show coming up in Germany yeah. in September. Uh, so I'm making paintings for that, yes. And I continue my curating work at the hotel. And I have a solo show coming up in New York in 2021 in the spring. So I'm just working towards those two
0: Wonderful. things right now. Um, we've come to the end of our episode, but all the best to you. Those are really exciting things to look forward to. And we yes. hope that we can thank you check so in much. with you in the near future. <laughs> um, I want to thank you and, and thank you. Professor Duncan. Yeah. <laughs> um, for for all of the encouragement that he offered you, and all of the encouragement that you've offered our listeners and me personally as a friend, um, to to persevere and to to keep creating and to be generous, um, and a lot of a lot of what you shared in the beginning about artists as scientists and our role in helping unite um, our communities is very very profound. And yeah, thank you so much
1: again for your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you for this amazing podcast. Absolutely. It's it's such an amazing uh, platform that you're giving Baha'i artists to talk and share with each other. And it's it's so inspiring to listen to all the episodes. So thank you for including me.
0: Thank you, Kimmy. All the best. We'll talk soon. Talk soon. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Cloud9. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to check out Bahaiteachings.org, where you can find more Baha'i-inspired podcasts, videos, and
1: articles.